Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, January the 27th, and this is episode 2813. Today's episode is an interview with a gentleman named Tony Nguyen from Polarity Exchange, and uh, I really was looking forward to doing this one. I, I've already recorded the episode as I do this intro, which sometimes that's the case, sometimes I do it before. Um, so I get to tell you that this was a fantastic interview in advance and know that it was. It wasn't, I'm not guessing, I know. It went over an hour and 40 minutes, and I didn't realize it. It was that fantastic of an interview. I knew we were going long, but I thought we were like an hour, 10, hour 15, something like that, maybe an hour 20 uh, toward the end. I looked at the thing, oh, holy crap. And when you have that type of conversation, you know you're dealing with really interesting uh, information and a really great presentation. Today you're going to, we're going to, and, and really it is almost like two interviews. That's why it's so long. We, we do about the first half of the interview. We don't talk about polarity exchange at all. That's what I loved about when I reached out to these guys, and I'll tell you why I did in a second. Um, the, the entire first half of the interview, is, it has, if you never, ever go near polarity.exchange, it is still valuable to you in understanding cryptocurrency at a really great level. And, and it's presented at a way that I think veterans and newbies will both like. We then switch and talk about Polarity Exchange, which I wanted to do. I'll tell you that maybe one in 20 guests on this show is somebody that I'm like, hey, I really should have them on the show. Hey, will you come on the show and they're invited? Uh, I would say about 18 and 19 of 20 are people that fill out the guest form and ask to be on. I have no idea that they're going to apply. They just do. That keeps us booked out months in advance. I don't really go out of my way to invite guests on. That's probably why I don't tend to have on like politicians and authors and stuff. I try to bring on people that I really believe can help educate you. Well, during my second interview with Draith Kata from Pirate Chain, he just mentioned when we were talking about this in exchanges, he said those guys at Polarity are great to work with. And having worked with, with, with Draith behind the scenes a bit now since our interviews, when he said that, I was like, well, I'm going to find out. So I set up an account with Polarity. There was a little bit of a learning curve. I've mentioned this a few times. They're a decentralized exchange, and they are, in my opinion, as far as exchanges go, the most the most way in one way where you can ensure your privacy and your security at the same time. And you'll hear all about it in just a bit. I I, I really invite you, especially if you're just getting started with cryptocurrency, and you're concerned with being able to do business privately being able to keep your crypto secure, not just when it's on a hardware wallet, but secure always, including when it's when it's being used for exchange purposes, you really want to listen to this interview. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is the Free State Project. This is a group of individuals that have been at it now for over a decade, moving as many people as they can to the great little state of New Hampshire. There's a reason for that. Huge body of government, very small state. Very representative democracy, and that means easy to influence. You bring a whole bunch of liberty-minded people in, and you drag the state against us, will-kicking and screaming into the world of liberty. They've been at it a long time. They've made a 
huge progress in doing that. You want to check them out. The website is fsp.org. And if you go to fsp.org forward slash visit NH, you can learn how you can take a really awesome vacation. And instead of taking a vacation to a place that's really cool, but having no one there to kind of help you out, have people on the ground that can say, hey, you really should go here. Why don't you join me and my family for dinner over here? We can tell you and show you the places that, you know, that, that people don't see when they're just tourists. And then you can kind of take a vacation and check out a potential new home at the same time. And even if you don't move, you're meeting some really cool people. Learn more at fsp.org forward slash visit NH. Next up, a new sponsor. He's, he's new to the show as a sponsor, but he's not new to the show or the community. The Wealthsteading Podcast by John Pugliano, where John teaches wealth-building principles like a version of modern-day modern, modern homesteading, where you learn and nurture and grow your assets for a lifetime of financial independence. John tells you specifically how he's investing his own money and what he thinks is happening with the stock market and in the economy. He ignores media hype and focuses on the data behind the headlines. You know that he's a great source of information because he's been part of our expert council for years. I first met John at a uh, at a trade show in Salt Lake City, and he's been a loyal supporter of the community ever since. If you've never gone to Wealth, uh, the, the Wealthsteading podcast, you really should. You can find it at You guessed it, wealthsteading.com. Check him out today. John Pugliano, now part of the sponsor lineup. With that, let's go ahead and dive into today's show. Before I bring Tony on, I, I was thinking about this uh, concept of privacy and security. And you know, guys, that I've said that privacy and security are different. And it's true, but it's not true. And I think when we get into this discussion with Tony today, as we start talking about things like hacks that have happened, you'll understand what I mean when I say you can't have real security unless you have real privacy. Even if you're not worried about the government. Everybody always wants to make this about the government. This is not about government. Um, this is about there's things about you that people don't need to know, at least don't need to have served up to them on a silver platter. And if you don't have privacy, so I talked about how like you could have a really secure house, but if the house was made of glass, it was all windows, nobody could break in, but everybody could see everything that's going on. And you would have security, but you wouldn't have privacy. Now, if you really think about that analogy, it's a good way to explain security and privacy as different concepts, but then do you really have security? If someone knows everything you're doing inside of your house, does that exploit vulnerabilities that damage your potential security? And the answer is yes. And as I was thinking about this, I was looking for a quote for today's show that would drive home the importance of privacy. And I found one that wasn't really what I was looking for, but I heard it and I liked it. It's by a guy named Niles Finman, or Feynman, I'm not sure how you say it. He's a Danish professor. And this is what he said about people in the coming days, in the coming years. The citizens will divide between those who prefer convenience and those who prefer privacy that it will always take more effort to have true privacy, and hence security. So it will always be more convenient not to. And boy, when you look at things like just switching a social media platform, don't you see that? That all the excuses, all the reasons for staying somewhere where your privacy is not protected come down to, well, it's convenient, it's easy, I'm already here, my friends are here, and the people that leave 
they know they're giving up that convenience. They know they're giving up that comfortable relationship, not just with the people, but the, the, the service. But they're doing it more for privacy than they are for freedom of speech. I am more interested in not having my data shared. I didn't always used to think this way. Because I would think, well, I'm a public personality. Everything I put on Facebook, right? Everything I put on Facebook is public anyway. So why do I care? And that stuff that Jack said, the X, Y, and Z, I don't care. The dossier built on me by Facebook, and that's the only proper word for it, the digital dossier built by Facebook, built by Twitter, the tracking of my behavior across multiple websites, the, the personal data that they have that they say is secure, the things they know about me, the opinion they form of me, which could be right or wrong, or worse, partially right, that's the worst, being shared with governments, and I said governments with an S, and industry, is just the direct definition of techno-fascism. All of those things made me realize, I can't use this anymore. The fact that they were censoring speech was bad. But when I really thought about the fact that they were, they were using me and selling me and my data, that was too much. That was a bridge too far. So it required for me to prefer my privacy over convenience. I think when it comes to, like, if you already buy and sell cryptocurrency on occasion and you use a really easy onboard exchange like, like Coinbase, and if you just need to get some cryptocurrency and you're starting from zero, they're probably a, the best. That's why I still recommend them. That's why I have links on my website so you can go to Coinbase and set up an account. Yes, it's probably a good onboard. However, once you're on board, what you do from there should be as private as possible. And there's a ton of great reasons from a security perspective to use a decentralized exchange that holds, that allows you to hold your own keys to your own wallet, to your own crypto, which I'm sure there's other ones, but Polarity is the only one I know of that does that. I'm not saying there's no more, that they're the only one. I'm saying they're the ones I know. You're going to hear about how that works. Where you have a wallet, a, it's a lot like having a Jack's wallet or Coinami wallet that you control, that your money is always in. It's yours. You hold the keys, both to the private and public, and you hold the seed phrase. That's amazing to me. And, and you're going to hear when we talk about this how, like, if you'll notice, if you go to Bittrex, and you go and you spend Bitcoin and you buy ARK, right, or you buy Polkadot or you buy whatever crypto you buy, You'll notice there's no transaction ID. You can't go to a place on a blockchain and see, oh, this cryptocurrency moved over here from this address to that address because it didn't. It's sitting in a pool, and you have control over it. And it is a thing, and it does work. And overall, it works fairly well. But it creates vulnerabilities to both privacy and security. When you make an exchange on this particular DEX exchange polarity, it's literally the movement of money from one wallet address to another that can be explored on a blockchain and verified. And you hold the keys, and you hold the phrase. There's some conveniences you will give up. We'll talk about those as well. But what you have to decide, not just with cryptocurrency, but with almost everything you do, 
specifically digitally going forward, do you prefer convenience or do you prefer privacy? And I want you to think about how dangerous a lack of privacy is in 2021. I want you to think about 2011, which is not that long ago, 10 years, and what a, what a lack of privacy was in 2011 compared to today. Look at what you've seen happen to people over a lack of privacy today versus 10 years ago. Look at the way things are being used and weaponized against people today versus 10 years ago. And you ask yourself on that trend, what do you think the world looks like in 2031? So what choice you make today is critical to your tomorrow. With that in mind, let me introduce our special guest today, Tony Nguyen. He is a technologist with a background in software development, cloud computing, and blockchain development. He's an amazing guy. Uh, you're going to hear from him today, and he's going to tell you all about what he's learned about cryptocurrency over the years. He's going to tell you all about decentralized exchanges. He's going to tell you about polarity. He's an awesome dude. I have flat out welcomed him back on the show anytime he wants to come back on because I'm so impressed with the work that he and his company are doing. With that, hey, Tony, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you very much, Jack. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, hello to the entire audience. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to uh, to come on the show today and talk about polarity and cryptocurrency in general. Uh, it's a huge topic with my audience that, that is becoming more and more concerned with uh, privacy and the ability to conduct transactions without a third party um, and, and many other issues. What I'd like to start out with, though, can you tell us how, how, how did you personally get involved with cryptocurrency in the first place, kind of just so the audience can kind of connect with you as a person before we dig into the topic itself? Yep. So, I mean, um, back in university, I remember, and this was probably nine, ten years ago, um, I was doing a degree in information technology, and um, I had a focus in software development. And I remember one time watching my, my friend um, purchase something online with Bitcoin. Hmm. And to me, when I watched him do it, because I, I could appreciate in the back end how it differed from how traditional um, IT systems work, It, it really, I really gravitated towards it as the next generation of how um, transparent transactions, not only in the financial space but in other spaces as well, um, uh, it would it would kind of address that area. And so, from from then on, I've been I've been consistently purchasing it and being a participant in the ecosystem. Um, I've continued kind of a mainstream information technology career as well. Um, and, And so it, it's both a, it's, it's more of a passion for me than anything else. And obviously, because I'm an, quite an early investor, I'm happy with the outcome. But to be honest, it's, it's really an appreciation of the technology and, and how it can really change the way that people think and hold um, their, their systems accountable. And whether it's a, a banking system, a government system, uh, a system you use online like eBay or Amazon, I think it's, it's really one day I hope people really wake up and, and, and hold those systems to account and cryptocurrency, blockchain technology is one of those ways. I think the reason it's one of those ways is, and I want to kind of dig into this with you now on how crypto is different from a normal banking system, but I think that's a big part of why because I've seen examples, there was a, a, a thing that happened in the United States called Operation Choke Point uh, under the Obama administration where the FDIC was directed to go in and, and kind of lean on banks and say, you know, we don't really like these payday loan people. Maybe you shouldn't be doing business with them at your bank. And then all of a sudden this customer who had never done anything wrong, 
was operating a completely and totally legal and legitimate business, gets a letter from their bank, which enables all everything they do. Like they, they, They're in the money business. They literally can't function without a bank account. No corporation really can, um, if you're going to live in that world anyway. And, and they're losing their account, and then no other bank wants them. And they did this to businesses that sold ammunition, businesses that sold guns. And again, these were legal businesses with no, that, never a strike against them legally, and then they were leveraged out. So how does cryptocurrency different from that banking system where that kind of thing can happen? Yeah, I think the important part here is that um, for, for the mechanisms for a system to be fair, at the very least, they have to be transparent. So a, a good example of this is if I'm sending money from, let's say, myself to you, Jack, I punch in a number into a, into a web web form that goes into a database, who knows where, and it's verified by who knows what system. And then, and on the other side, it says that, or it may not say that you've received it. So there's all these parts in that system that are completely opaque to me as the end user, but not just me, every single person that's around me. I mean, to be honest, there's only a very small amount of parties that understand that full system and probably none into, into its full entirety, right? Because there might be cross-bank um, reconciliation. So what cryptocurrency does, it simplifies that process because, number one, it's directly from me to you. And number two, every single step in that process is transparent. From the moment that I verify it by signing that transaction to the moment that you receive it because I can see on the, on the shared ledger that you've received it. And so because the system is completely transparent, even moving away from the privacy um, and for some people, that is a concern. Just as a pure system that is accountable for the output and the inputs. Um, that's why the, the cryptocurrency system is so much more robust than the normal banking system because we no longer rely on blind faith in a bunch of systems that we don't fully understand and we cannot fully understand. And this is where you have systematic discrimination. You know, you have things like fractional banking where the people who are able to consolidate enough money to start banks can then participate in this backdoor financial system wherein you, you have no idea. And so there are much more complex cryptocurrency use cases now out there that really are t testament to this in, in kind of like loaning systems and marginal trading systems. But at its very core, do you as a user want to be able to verify when you sent your money somewhere, it arrived there? That, that's the simplest question. And if, and if your, if your answer to that is you don't care, then, you know, me and you differ greatly. But for me, there's, there's a huge, there's a huge problem. If let's say I'm holding hundreds of thousands of dollars in a bank account and one day that bank account, because of a database error, can just say to me, you have no money. That's super scary. I don't know about you, Jack, but no, yeah. to me, that's a, that's a real concern I have because it has happened before and it will continue to happen because that's what centralized systems, you know, because of upgrades and because there's a very small amount of parties verifying it. You know, I think that's where the real risk is for individual users. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think I have a good friend that a few years ago, my, myself and some other folks kind of helped out financially and we did it with cryptocurrency because what had happened is he was disputing with the state of Massachusetts an issue over tax taxes. And he was in the middle of the dispute. He was doing everything right. And they just decided he was wrong. And they locked and seized his, his checking accounts. Right? They just took his money. It, it was insane that they could do that. And, you know, we wanted to help. And it was only a couple thousand bucks he needed as kind of a bridge, you know, out of the situation. But the last thing we wanted to do, right, was send him money in his bank account. Because they'll take it again. 
where even something is, that's as public a ledger as Bitcoin, if somebody knows the address they, and they know it's associated with you and they say, well, you have it, and if they say, well, give it to us, no. And if they say they're going to take it, you know what your response is? Go ahead. Go ahead, take it. Because it can't. And that is... That is a unique level of power, and I think we created this kind of deal with the devil with the modern banking system and the the integrated nature of the state and, and the banking system with these centralized banks because we felt we needed them, right? Because they make sure that your money is real money. It's not counterfeit. They make sure it's secure. They make sure it's you know private. And to me, when we went into this world, we kind of took all of that And we put the trust in the technology, and then by making the technology open source, and even a, a completely private crypto like, like Pirate Chain is still open source in its blockchain technology. So that there was literally thousands and thousands of, of you know technologists all over the world who live, they live, you know, because I know this is part of your background, you live to find somebody screwing somebody so you can point it out and be the guy that pointed it out. And so this code is ripped apart, you know, with people across the world with different disciplines of knowledge, and therefore the trust is in this thing functions independent. And then the other side is like, let's say I run Jack's Bank. I was a multi-billionaire and I created a bank because I'm foolish. And uh, I decide, well, I'm going to do business with all the people that the other banks don't do business with. So what does the government do if they're angry? They come after me. If they're angry at Bitcoin, there's no, I've said this, there's no building with a big B on it, right? There's no, there's no place to go. That decentralization becomes this multifaceted solution, right? And I think that's, I mean, that's a key part of it is that I, I, like I come from Australia, which is a very, very, I mean, from a, from a purely trust credit score rating, from a truly, from a government perspective, it's one of the most transparent and, and mature governments um, out there. You know, we have a very, very high GDP per capita. And so, you know, I often take for granted that um, the, not everyone in the world enjoys the level of financial equality that I do. And even in my, um, in, even in Australia, there's systematic discrimination in the in the financial system itself. So, services that are only available to people with a certain net worth, um, OTC deals in terms of currency exchange, for financial instruments that you can only access if you have you know, two hundred fifty thousand dollars for the down payment, but. Um, you know, like there are so many countries out there wherein the financial systems are not well developed and that it's ripe for corruption. It's ripe for uh, discrimination using whatever mechanism they want to like. And so if I, I honestly believe that if people are advocates of, you know, uh, no sexism, no racism, no discrimination about uh, based on religion, um, Cryptocurrency enforces that to the to the highest highest level where everyone is anonymized in the system, right? So that, that is my genuine genuine opinion about like whether just beyond the perspective of use, like usability or whether it works or not, which on a technical level it does. But from a moral standpoint, does it promote the morals that I, as a free citizen, um, care about? And one of those morals and, and principles is freedom. Like, do I believe that people should be free, and do I believe people should be treated equally? And by using cryptocurrency and promoting it, I think that I further that, that goal. How do you feel about people that say, you know, we, we need to make cryptocurrency mainstream? Will it ever be? Is it already? How do you come at that, that term? Because almost every movement, like you hear eventually somebody says, I want it to go mainstream. 
I mean, it's 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 a market that is currently, you know, if you if you added up all the market caps, it's shy of a, a trillion dollars, right? And so you've got <laughs> U.S. companies that are larger than than uh, like a single U.S. company is larger than the entire market cap of um of 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 all the cryptocurrencies combined. Um, so do I think that cryptocurrency can be considered mainstream at the moment? Uh, no, and I think that it's a good thing because there's so much more to evolve and there's so much more to do. Now. Do I think that the, the target market for cryptocurrency is slowly expanding? Absolutely. And I think eventually, I hope that one day we will get to a point that, you know, you will, rather than using your Visa card, um, you'll, you'll just use your, you know, um, bank account linked to cryptocurrency and, and it's linked and it's running a transaction directly against the network, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum. I, I don't know because those transaction costs are very high, but maybe a, 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 a second layer solution. Um, however, to that point, though, I, I flew to Georgia the other like three years ago, and I saw a cryptocurrency ATM, right? So that was pretty wicked. Like I saw, <laughs> and they're being rolled out in Europe. So I guess for a lot of people in some some different societies, they may be experiencing adoption much faster than the countries with a lot more maturity in their own financial systems. Yeah, we've had those in the states here for years that we've had cryptocurrency ATM. So it's one of those things, like, it depends. Like, like that's how I answer so many questions to where I frustrate my audience. Like, they'll ask me a question, well, it depends. And then, you know, what it does it depend on? Well, it depends on, in this case, like, how are you viewing it? Are you viewing it as it has large adoption? Then yes. Are you viewing it as, yeah, like, you know, I, I compare it to something like stock in General Electric. Like, General Electric's stock alone, as you said, exceeds the entire market cap of all cryptocurrencies. And, and that, to me, that's really exciting. And I always caution people. I'm not saying this is an indicator of the future. But when I look at the work Satoshi did with the original Bitcoin uh, white paper and, and laying out the algorithms and all, uh, whoever he may be, God bless him uh, or, or her, uh, I, I look at this and I think about how excited the Bitcoin community was, unfortunately, before I got involved when we, you know, Bitcoin hit dollar parity, meaning one Bitcoin was worth one dollar. And, and I look at that and I go, if this is going to be a global currency, even a reserve, because I see, and I know people take this the wrong way, I see Bitcoin kind of as digital gold, but not in the fact that it's analogous to gold, but it serves that reserve currency fact uh, component. Uh, but if you actually looked at it and you said, well, where would Bitcoin be if a Satoshi was worth a penny? It's exactly a million dollars. And that may just be because the guy liked tens, and thought metrically, or it may be like, maybe that's the plan. I don't know, but it, to me it's a very interesting thing. And people think that's crazy, but as you said, we have multiple corporations that are far in excess of the entire crypto market, let alone Bitcoin. And, and I've always said, what happens the day that, if you want to call it mainstream, 10% of people in the United States alone, one country that have retirement accounts in the neighborhood of, you know, say, above $300,000, just 10% of that subgroup, decide they want one Bitcoin. And, and mathematically, it, it's not doable. It's not possible. There's not enough available. And, and we both know what that does to the price. So I think it's it's exciting where this can go long term. As I always say, no guarantees, though, right? <laughs> I mean, exactly. And so, you know, if, if you're honestly, a lot of people, I, I like a lot of my friends, they saw I made a, a bit of money on cryptocurrency um, way back, and then they got they jumped into it, and the, some of them got in a bit earlier, some of them got in at the high. But 2017, it's, it's funny, right? The opposite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 2017 highs, and then, and then so they never touched it again, right? Because they're treating it like a 
let's say like a spec- speculative asset, like similar to going to casino. And, and, and so what I feel kind of sad about when people do that is that they don't, they don't really appreciate why it, why does someone else across the world think that it might be worth that much? Like, why is there someone out there willing to pay $34,000 yeah. for this asset? And so you can see on, you know, all the common media sites now that the second rally around, a lot more institutions are waking up and realizing, um, that like this is a, this is a, is a financial system that works. And so, Across specific dimensions, does it work better than the traditional banking system and financial systems? And a lot of people think it does. And and you're 100% correct. Like you just need to do the the uh, the maths, right? Like if tomorrow there's a Bitcoin ETF, and that like in Australia, I don't know about the US, but we have mandatory requirement uh, retirement fund mm-hmm. called uh, superannuation. And so if a part of the superannuation required you to hold a certain percentage of cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, Bitcoin Cash, I don't know which one, which, whichever one you want to bet on, um, the whole market would appreciate at an order of magnitude because it's a financial system that actually works. The, the system will scale. Now it's just about people, uh, more and more people wanting it. And that's, and that's clearly happening. I mean, you can look at all the trends, uh, whether it's uh, sentiment analysis, uh, look up Google AdWords, how many people are looking it up. Uh, how many traders there are, how many countries are being addressed. All the numbers this time around in this rally are much larger than before. And I believed in it for the last three years during the slump. So my position hasn't changed for 10 years of this. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's always scared me with my audience because they do take my recommendations, but sometimes it's not the right time. I, uh, I, I operate as a Coinbase affiliate because it's an easy way to make 10 bucks in Bitcoin every time somebody signs up and funds their account. And so I see the activity in this very large audience I have And I always get the most referrals when Bitcoin's at its highest points. But get excited and people jump in. And then when it's like at three grand in that couple months where it was like, this, you know, like, get it now, nothing. And it, it's, it's, it's funny to me. And it's, it's like, it, I guess I'm not a real fan of Buffett, Warren Buffett, but I, I, I do see some of his wisdom. And he's like, you have to be brave when others are fearful and fearful when others are brave. And it doesn't seem that maybe that's caught on yet. And as it does, I think you actually see more stability to the market. Uh, you've mentioned countries here a couple times. Do you ever see a point, though, where countries, instead of, like, they've kind of allowed it because they couldn't stop it, so they pretend to tolerate it, but they've they've not been really on board with, hey, let's just accept this thing and make the most of it. Do you ever see a point where nations start to really facilitate Cryptocurrency is a medium of exchange. Say, hey, this is just what we're going to do now, or we're going to make this easier. We're going to be more friendly to it. To me, it seems like, and maybe this is why you guys are headquartered where you are uh, overseas, that the countries that would do this first would become like the new Bahamas, right? The new, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, um, I think that it, it's inevitable that they'll have have to facilitate it. To be honest, and it's already happening. You know, a lot of countries are releasing tax laws in relation to cryptocurrencies. Um, some of them are cat- specifically singling out uh, tokens and, and categorizing them based on a set framework, which I think is, you know, if they're doing it for the right reasons, I think is, um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's good because it, it can help inform and it can work to help inform the, the, um, the citizens of their country and people about, you know, what differentiates Uh, an actual normal asset versus a, a cryptocurrency that's fueled for a network and the mechanisms that are, uh, are being, because they're quite complex actual instruments or, or whatever you want to call them. They're a technology, you know, as a technology, it's quite complex. So as a, so trying to 
value that as a financial instrument in the form of a token, that in itself is very complex. And so if you've got countries doing evaluations, you know, like an example with the U.S. with Ripple recently, whether I agree with it or not, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is it's good that they're having a look and they're, they're starting a conversation. And maybe they, you know, the, the Ripple guys don't like the conversation that's being started, but you know, then, then there's a, a, a process to then try to fix the definitions. Um, but overall, I think that a lot of countries are starting to become, because they've been inherently gaining a capability and they've realized a key note, uh, that if they control the offboarding of cryptocurrency, meaning that to convert cryptocurrency to USD to actually spend, if they can control that element, then they are okay with cryptocurrencies. That seems to be the current consensus. Yeah, and, and so what, that's why I think, by the way, they're going to create like a, a crypto version of the dollar, a crypto version of the euro, etc. So that not only then can they control it, they can see it, they can trace it, they can track it, they can go back through blockchains and say, hey, by the way, not only did you do that, but you owe us this much in taxes. Yeah, which, which by the way, like um, if you're using cryptocurrencies and you're, you're in a country that you're required to pay tax on the gains, I highly advise to still pay the tax just because, um, you know, it, you, unless you completely fully understand the technology, and I'm not, I'm not promoting committing a crime, but a lot of these cryptocurrencies are, are traceable. I mean, it's the, the privacy is the fact that anyone can generate wallets and you don't need to associate your personal, personal data to your wallet. But at some point, if you offboard into your own bank account, there's now a link, right? Mm-hmm. And so they can track back all the transactions. So people just need to be aware of that risk because a lot of people I see, they don't think about the tax implications and then one day they get, they get hammered by it and so they don't, they don't take the correct actions and so they end up having to pay quite a large tax bill on that. Um, but com- common medium of exchange, I think it's Inevitable. I think some countries um, that have failing currencies will adopt it faster than the ones with established ones, and I think you're correct. Uh, fiat versions of the of like tokenized fiat currencies are going to be released by countries, I believe. And to be honest, from a country from a country's perspective, it's cheaper than printing physical money, right? Like, what's the how much money is transacted by like your credit cards versus physical currency now? So I think it's the way of the future, and I think that the, f- the first countries that hop on board, they'll be the ones to be the ones to you know gain an advantage from being that far technical technologically ahead. I'll just before we go on, I'll just point out for my audience's benefit, I have I have no faith in any state whatsoever. I just don't. Um, I think they'll use it in very nefarious ways, but I think it's a reality that they're going to do. And I think that crypto both can then move in and out of those and then, okay, then you pay the man his, his deal. But I think there's going to be an entire parallel world where people do business 100% in crypto. Uh, and we have more and more technologies like Monero, like uh, Pirate Chain, like Zcash should have been and Pirate Chain became, where people can do business with complete and total privacy. And I think both of those worlds are going to exist. Like, like we don't, it's not like, well, we're going to advocate for this one or that. Like, you're, that's like advocating for whether or not the sun will rise tomorrow. Like, this is now a technology that's been unleashed and it's going to be used in everything from the world of pure anarchism to pure statism and everything in between. And I think that's why it's important for people to learn about it because no matter where you choose to exist in that spectrum or straddle within it, you're going to deal with this. You're going to have to uh, accept that this will become the primary medium of exchange in the world, even if it's U.S. dollars. It's still going to be 
something crypto-like. I don't think that any of those currencies made by any of those nations will be cryptocurrency the way that Bitcoin is, or Bitcoin Cash, or take your pick, where they're auditable publicly by anyone. I don't think that will ever be because I don't think they want to give that up, but it's going to function that way, if that makes sense. I, I actually think that what you're saying is most likely going to be the case in that maybe they'll adopt some blockchain activity, but let's say they might be the only actual miners. And so as a participant in the, in the ecosystem, you might only be able to view the transactions, but you won't be able to, you're not a validator in the network. And that might be because of national security. You know, there's, there are 51% attacks on networks. Sure. And if the country, let's say, operated the currency and was 51% attacked by a foreign mission state or just a very large organization externally, you'd have issues. So I, I think that you're correct in saying that, I mean, Bitcoin is a miracle. I mean, if, if you just think from a, from a, from a perspective of how, how many times in history have tens and at this point probably, uh, you know, 50, 100 million people all came together and agreed that this is a valid system unilaterally. Like everyone yeah. agrees that this works. Like I'm going to purchase this and I'm going to exchange this and no matter where you're on the earth, we're going to agree on the price that you're going to accept it at and we're going to validate that your mechanism of, of, of receiving it and validating that re- receivership is as valid as my mechanisms for validating that I've sent it. And so that level of consensus, like if you're, if you're like, that is a, a miracle that we've been achieved that technology, technologically. There's nothing else I, that I know of in all of history wherein so many people globally agreed on. I, I completely agree. Let's talk a little bit about exchanges because this is how we get cryptocurrency from one form into another. Um, and there's two primary, I guess you could subdivide these, but the, the primary way that I think about exchanges is either centralized exchanges or decentralized exchanges. And, you know, the entire point of cryptocurrency is decentralization. Like I said, there's no building with a big B on it that the government can attack, right? There's no president of Bitcoin to go after and sanction, right? It, does, it doesn't exist. But the exchanges up until fairly recently have been centralized then there's some value there because they provide liquidity and 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 you know what have you but you know in this world that has now emerged decentralized exchanges can you explain to the audience what the difference between those two things are yep so how i would describe it is um with a centralized exchange although you know you are trading bitcoin you're trading ethereum it's the same concept of of you trading usd at your bank like when you trade USD at your bank, um, there's a database that keeps track of the transactions, but only they have access to it. Only they validate it. And, you know, when they send, when they reconcile the balances, meaning that, you know, enough people have sold Bitcoin and enough people have bought Bitcoin and withdrawn and deposited, they net the difference and, and, make, and bulk the transactions, right? And, and so the, the opaqueness of how that operates is still present. And really it's, you're, you're trading Bitcoin functionally in name only. There's no way to validate that when you made that trade of, 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 um, of Bitcoin, you actually received the Bitcoin or you actually sold the Bitcoin and received the other asset that you were trading for. Um, now, and that's, and what we call, usually call that is a custodial account. So a custodial account is when there's a custodial, in this case, the centralized exchange, which, um, validates permission to your account and has all the rights to be able to say whether you have the balance or not. And so I, I really am, concerned with how popular a lot of these centralized exchanges are, especially if they sit in nation states that you are not aware of the laws, mm. right? So if you're, 
if you're, and, and I, I don't know why people are more concerned about this, because if you're, let's say, from a specific country, you've grown up in with a certain expectation of how all your systems work. Maybe you're too trustworthy. I, I don't know, Jack, why you're really, really um, skeptical. Well, I do. <laughs> you're fairly skeptical. You seem to be way off the left side. Um, but if you, I don't understand how you're not concerned if you're using a centralized exchange in, you know, uh, an Asian country with a different type of government, a completely different type of government system. Um, you can trust that because you have no idea what the national forfeiture laws are. You don't know how to do rec- legal reconciliation if there is a dispute. Like there is no systems in place for you to fix anything or prove anything, even to your own government. And they will not defend you and they will not take it. So using centralized exchanges, if you're going to use one, I, I highly recommend you use one that is within a legal domain that you completely understand. Um, at the very least, like it, it is – um, you're okay with the way that gov- that government operates from a from a structure perspective, from a legal perspective. Now, the way decentralized exchanges work is the operations, not maybe not all of them decentralized, but the core operation, which is the transfer of money and the recording of who has what money, is done on a public ledger, right? So what that means is that when you make a trade, um, when you receive that money for that specific price, and that other person on the opposite side of the trade receives um, the asset for that certain amount of price, that process is reconciled by every single one person a part of that network. So if you've got an, if you've got, if you're in a network with 10,000 nodes, that's 10,000 people who all validated that transaction. And so if you ever had a dispute about why is your balance incorrect versus, you know, what you thought you'd receive, it, it's not a legal dispute. It's not one where you have to hire lawyers. It's a technical dispute because either the technology functioned incorrectly or your understanding of the technology is wrong, <laughs> wherein both of them can be reconciled with a degree of ease, right? Like versus trying to sue someone in, I don't know, another country. Yeah, <laughs> no. You don't know the day. Yeah, I get that. I mean, one of the things I really liked about Polarity when I set up an account there is, so you know who I am. We're talking to each other. You And I could send you a picture of my driver's license. I could send you a picture of me petting my dog. I could send you pictures of me with my grandkids, a picture of my house, where I'm on Google Maps, uh, my corporate history, and everything about myself, and say, okay, now tell me which account is mine on your exchange. You wouldn't be able to, and nobody else that works for your company would be either. No one would be able to. You would never be able to tell. If I asked you and gave you my permission, you know, if I if I put my account up under Jack Spirico Podcaster, well, then you probably could. But the way I've done it, since there's no direct association to me, you you couldn't do it if I begged you to. In fact, when I set my wallet up with you, which I love that I have a wallet versus an account, um, it says like if you if you f this up, if you lose your seed phrase and all that good stuff. We can't help you because we don't have access. And to me, that was like, I, I've, I've looked at other DEX exchanges. I wasn't really comfortable with them because I didn't, not because they weren't good or bad, I just because I didn't understand. When I understood how polarity worked, I was like, oh, I'll use that. Because, now you correct me if I'm wrong in how I describe this. I've been an advocate, especially for small amounts when you're learning and what have you, use a you know a multi-currency light wallet like Jack's Liberty or Coinami or something like that. What the wallet that I have to do my trading on Polarity feels like to me is a cloud-based version of a wallet like that. So it's not sitting as a piece of software on my hard drive, but it works like that sitting out in space where... You know the old saying, if not your keys, not your coins. I hold my keys, you don't. 
that's my currency in my wallet. And I don't know what security vulnerabilities there could be, but a Mt. Gox-style hack is not one of them. Or the government just deciding, we're just going to take your money because it's sitting on this exchange that we have a relationship with is also not one of them. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 uh, correct. But just, uh, just to the point, I think it's important here, and I don't know, I'm sure you've explained it in the past, but just a key, key element of this, um, to, um, this process to understand is that how do you prove that you've sent money from, you know, from Jack to Tony's wallet, right? So we just, we both exist as addresses on the network. Sure. How is it, how do you, how does Jack verify that he sends money to me? And so that's where the key mechanism, and I'll just briefly describe it because it's important to the next explanation I'll give. Um, Jack, in this case, is going to sign a transaction, meaning that he uses a cryptographic process to, and only he is the key. And it's something called um, asymmetrical encryption, meaning that he can sign it. No one else can do the same signature, but mm-hmm. everyone can verify that it was from him. And I say from you as in from your wallet, not from Jack's personal. So yeah. um, that's called asymmetrical encryption. And so because people don't understand asymmetrical encryption, they don't understand how that's possible. And so it's a, it's a cryptographic uh, – well, there's a number of mechanisms to do it in terms of, um, in terms of algorithms. But – Functionally, the, the underlying rule is that technic- at the technical level, there's a way that Jack can sign something and everyone can verify that he did sign it, but no one else can imitate the signature on a different transaction. And so what you're describing in terms of running your own node or running your own light wallet locally, all that happens if you use a remote node, which is what you do in Polarity Exchange for convenience, is that we can only block the transactions, but there are other nodes on the network that will accept them. Right. So at the end of the day, there's no uh, from a security perspective, all it is, all that we can, all that you ensure yourself to do when you run your own node locally using some of these other wallet technologies is the ability to not be blocked from your own node because you wouldn't block yourself. But from a signing perspective, it's the exact same process. Mm. And I guess a way to look at that, too, would be like, so if you are on Bittrex, CoinX, any of the centralized exchanges and you have Bitcoin and you decide you want, I don't know, XYZ currency, because it doesn't matter, and you trade your Bitcoin for that on their Bitcoin board, you have a tra- you have a, a, a record that that occurred, but like you said, you don't actually have XYZ crypto, or if you used XYZ to trade for Bitcoin, you don't have Bitcoin. You have a record that says that you are entitled to or you have control of, let's say, one Bitcoin. And if you look at that customer record in your account, There's no, when you're talking about it, like where somebody else can verify it is a transaction ID that says, here's where this happened on the blockchain. You'll notice that's not there. The only time you'll see that from like a Bittrex or a CoinX or whatever is when you withdraw. And at that point, they actually break off a piece of cryptocurrency and send it to you. And it becomes actually yours rather than something you have at least the illusionary of control over. Where with... CoinX, or I'm sorry, with, with Polarity, as I'm understanding it, when I go in and I think you guys use your reserve as Tether, and and I buy, you know, Ethereum, and it's now in my cloud-based wallet is the best way I can describe it. There's a transaction ID that shows that that money really is mine under my control, or that crypto is really mine. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So there's a current. So the and to the point of the with the Bitrex example. That transaction ID or, or proof is given to you by the very system that may mess up, 
right? So, so in the instance that there's a dispute, I mean, you're relying on the same system to, to get a, back your evidence that there is, that the dispute is valid. Whereas with polarity exchange, um, if there's a dispute in terms of the transaction, you don't need to go into polarity to verify it. You can go into the network explorer, which is a blockchain explorer, or you can run your own node and search up the transaction yourself and verify whether the transaction happened or not. Right. And just, just to your, just to the point with cloud-based wallets, it's important to note that there are such things as cloud-based wallets. And, um, but in, in the polarity exchange, because you're using a browser, you might think that it's happening in the cloud. But actually what, what we do is, um, your browser has a capability to store the key locally in local storage and do the signing locally. Okay. So there's no process that happens online. Actually, we don't ever store your wallet online anywhere. So mm. you're propagating transactions directly to the network from your browser and i mean like locally as an internal cpu process yeah to our, to to the network directly you actually never route via us no that makes sense it makes sense to me and i'll just say if it doesn't make sense to somebody listening listen again if it doesn't make sense trust it uh you're just there's a technical level to that that you know you you kind of have to be at but i i get what you're saying they i have control of everything on my end and i'm accessing your node remotely And, and so when you use a Coinami or a Jax wallet, for instance, which would be similar, um, you just have the GUI on your side. They're, they're nodes remote too, right? You don't actually have the node that's serving that piece of, uh, of application on your hard drive. It's still remote. It's the same but different, man, in the words of Tommy Chong, right? Like it's, it, 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 you're just, you're just controlling it over there, but everything that controls the mechanism is on, on, on the side of the user, which is why if somebody, if, if they did know what account I had, and the government said, give us Jack Spirico's money, I can't. I can't do it. It's not possible. I can block it. Like you said, you can block it, but it's still, other nodes will take it. Like, they, you can't do it. It's, it's not possible. And, and I mean, it's also to note that um, your your key never lose uh, your key never leaves your laptop, okay. and every transaction that leaves your laptop is signed. Already. Gotcha. So that's what I mean by all the processes are happening locally. Whereas with with actual cloud based solutions, um, and we can get into that later, there are other risks, and so it's it's yeah, very nuanced sense. the difference. It's very nuanced what difference, and, and we can get into hardware wallets at one point if you want, but there's yeah. a specific way we design polarity as, a, as we did. And, you know, maybe a user would never know the difference because that's our goal, right? Like, yeah, we, don't, yeah. we don't want every single person who uses our exchange to have to really dig into the technology because we want to protect them and treat their data and treat their, um, their money with, all, with the respect it deserves de facto. It's not mm. opt-in. It doesn't require you to have pre prerequisite information. We approach it from that angle from the very beginning. No, and it, I, I'm going to guess that's one of the key differences between Polarity and other exchanges, even other DEX exchanges, right? Well, I mean, if we get into how we secure our – like the biggest issue that people have with cryptocurrency, I feel, is trying to secure it. And so the, the previous consensus for how to secure your cryptocurrency was to get something called a hardware wallet, which is basically a, this little device. And instead of the signing of transactions occurring on your laptop, it happens on this tiny device. And the idea is that the device is a very simple computer and it, you know, it's not going to be virus because it's, it's, it's not actually connected to the internet in any way. And so when you want to send a transaction, the transaction sent to the tiny device, you sign it by pressing a couple of buttons and putting your pin. 
the signed transaction goes back to your computer and then your computer propagates it back to the network. And that was the previous consensus. Lo and behold, that company, well, the most popular countries that, uh, company that produces those hybrid wallets was hacked. And yeah. guess what? Um, when they were hacked, every single person who bought one of those devices, well, I think, I think their entire user base, um, and I was one of them, had their email address and, uh, and a home address completely leaked to the internet. And so now my email box is completely useless. I get, I get emails and scams every single day. Um, lucky my home address has changed because I've moved, huh. but anyone can now take my email, look up in this database and find all the information about me. And so that, that company, I mean, although they worked in the cryptocurrency space, clearly because of, I don't know what, cause they, they obviously shared the information with a third party. I think it was the background, but, um, they disclosed a lot of their customer information that maybe wasn't necessarily correct anyway. And worse than that, they treated it um, with not enough care. And I think that that's unacceptable. And so the way where how Polarity Exchange addresses this is that we are skeptical towards ourselves. Like yeah. we think to ourselves, uh, you know, what would happen? You know, what if we assume that Polarity Exchange and the team here could make mistakes? Right. And so how do we minimize the impact for our users from an information perspective, from a monetary perspective, how do we make sure that that person is protected? If we were to, if we were to demonstrate either you know, some incompetency, which, or you know, we were the target of a malicious actor, and that from the get-go is the design that we use. And so from the very beginning, we didn't want to do hardware wallets, and we didn't want to do um, even browser-based extension wallets uh, because that seems to be also a trend. Instead, we implemented a completely new type of technology which allows you to do confirmations of your transactions using an email address. And so there's an on-chain assurance that unless you verify it using an email address, that transaction won't be propagated. So even if now, using Polarity Exchange, even if you lost your key, your, your funds are still protected unless they could also access your email. And we're going to be adding to that security suite um, as we move along and making it even more enhanced. But the idea is that um, we want to take kind of a lot of the mainstream conveniences that people uh, appreciate and implement it in, in the in a format wherein we assume that we can make mistakes and so we want to minimize the damage as much as possible. And you're bringing up a really good point about privacy there because the people that, that had that happen to them with the hardware wallet issue um, did not have their cryptocurrency stolen. It wasn't like their keys were given out or anything, but a lot of personal information was, and also now that association with this person possesses a hardware wallet. Well, if I'm a bad guy and I get a bunch of information, I know people I can go and kind of you know hit up now. Like, and if I can find any information on that person as to uh, a, 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 an account or like an account number, but but a, a an address, I can then look and say, oh, this person has fifty thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. Right now they're a target. Like, and there's a lot of ways that person could be a target at that point. And so I've been I've been emailed personal threats, like yeah. literally personal threats to my emails saying because I because they know what date I bought the they have the information yeah. from when I bought it, so they yeah. know I bought it circa certain prices, and so they can make the assumption. And they don't, and maybe they don't get me specifically because I know what they're up to. Yeah, but they're they're email blasting millions of people, right? Wow. And so all these people are now victimized because they. D Because this company didn't treat their privacy with the right level of respect, and they, and like maybe they were forced to because they wanted to participate in the ecosystem, give that information up. Maybe when it wasn't necessary. Maybe that information should be yeah, deleted. Yeah, why did the they need that? Yeah, why did they need that? They needed it so they could sell it, 
you know, to other companies for marketing purposes. That's why they needed it. That's that's the only reason they needed it. Let, let's be honest about that. And um, it does create this kind of security risk. Well, there could be like one-off identifiers. So most centralized exchanges, even if they're no KYC, the way they'll verify things for the security of your account, and I get why they do it because it's easy, they have a phone number. So if I make a trade, it'll it'll go to, it'll send me a verifying email, and it'll send me as a second you know uh, authorization a text, and maybe a code that I'll put back in, so that you would have to have access to my phone, my email, and my account to use my account for fraud or to steal my money. I get it, I understand it, but now that company has a database that associates my username, even if it's not my personal name, with a phone number. That phone number can be then linked back to me. So a sophisticated hacker could gain that data and then do a matching search online for known phone numbers, call that out. I mean, this is stuff that you could do with SQL and an Excel spreadsheet, right? This is not high level. And then get a certain percentage, probably fairly high of those people identified. And that's a problem. What you guys do is you use two-factor authentication. And, and an email, and I can make an email up anytime. I, I can just go to ProtonMail or whatever and make up a new email. So I can have these two ways of verifying my security with you with nothing directly attached to me unless I'm foolish enough to say, oh, by the way, here's my, my third email that I use for this stuff. That's exactly it. It's, it's that we, we chose email addresses because they're fungible, right? Like anyone yeah. can make another one. And to, to this point, what we're moving towards now is that I don't know if you've ever used um, like uh, OTP generators, so like Google Authenticator or Microsoft Authenticator, yeah. where they're using a prime number-based system. But the next iteration of this, what I imagine is we want, we want to implement it so that to verify the transaction rather than even using an email, you just need an OTP code that's being generated locally on your device. Now, there are some usability issues with that because a lot of people don't – maybe they're not even using OTP to begin with – But also there are time syncing issues, and then you have to, and how do you remediate the issue if the person emails you and says, "Hey, my, my OTP is not working," right? Yeah. <laughs> because there's no way to prove that that person is the right person. So right now, email works because that person can then use that email address to contact our support and get the support they need because they can verify that from the email. But that is actually why we chose email because we're skeptical towards ourselves. We could have used phone numbers as well, but for us. Protecting the user comes first, and we're very, very user-centric in that way. And even at the expense of potentially having phone numbers that we can add, to, we can sell as a marketing database, right? Even at the expense of being able to build other products potentially, because we have a lot of personalized information for you. So, an example: let's say uh, trying to sell ads towards you. If I have more personalized information, it's more valuable. Sure. Right. And this is why we took this approach because we're very, very skeptical with ourselves. And so tomorrow, Jack, if you lose your email with us, I'm pretty sure you've emailed enough people out there that it doesn't really matter anyway. Or your email was only used for this anyway. So either way, you'd be protected or you're already at risk. Absolutely. That's kind of how we think about it. Absolutely. And that was kind of my point. Like if I use the personal email that I give out on the show to 250,000 people every day, that's my dumbass problem, right? So that's not what I did when I set up an account with you or, frankly, anybody else. I set up accounts that are specific for that um, that don't run across my server that I pay for with my credit card, right? Like, I mean, that's that. there's... They say in the security world, and it's kind of the same thing with personal identity stuff, there's no patch for stupid. Like, there's no way that you can technologically prevent someone from disclosing information they shouldn't disclose. 
but you can protect the data that you have by first and foremost choosing what form you take that data in. That's what you all did. Instead of taking the data in a form that was uniquely identifiable to somebody somewhere, you take the data in in a way where the user controls how much they disclose. And that, that, that won me over as soon as I understood the way the wallet worked, which I understand better now, thank you for that, and the way that my identity was protected. Because when I used an account with an exchange with my phone number on there, even like, oh, I don't know, a phone number attached to a Skype account, I know that if somebody's sophisticated, they can track that back to me. But 2FA, I don't, I don't really think that can be done. There's, I'd also like to point out that like on centralized exchanges, people need to be very careful about a very predatory practice at the moment, which is that you can create an account and you can deposit money, but you cannot withdraw money unless you KYC, meaning you mm -hmm. give up your passport, you give up your national identity, and it's yeah. usually two forms of identity, and then you prove your address. So imagine if in the case of the ledger leak, I still live there, and then you had Bitcoin, and there was a nefarious actor. Right. So these these this is a very predatory activity. And I think that, you know, governments and, uh, and legal entities should be specifically targeting this because I think that it is the same as holding someone for ransom. Right. When you take yeah. if you, when you, when you take deposits and you don't allow proportional withdrawals unless they do a certain amount of steps. How is it the, the, the same as ransoming someone? I, I completely holding, agree with that. And I've I've very, very long time ago, it was a small amount of money, but I I was a victim. That's how I became aware of it. Because I wanted to buy this kind of off, you know, currency that was like a very speculative thing. And it was uh, like a South Korean exchange or something like that. And I only bought a few hundred bucks worth and it was all no KYC right up until I wanted my money. And it was like either give it to them or you don't get your money. And since it was a small amount of money, it wasn't that big a deal. But like you said, what if it was uh, 50 grand worth of Bitcoin or something? I do accept the terms from exchanges that are upfront about it very upfront about it, and they place withdraw daily withdrawal limitations with no KYC, but you, it's like it's not in the fine print at the bottom, you know what I mean? Like, CoinX does that. CoinX is no KYC, you just basically bound your, your email and your phone number for security, and you can withdraw up to $10,000 a day. I don't have a problem with that. But there, like you said, there are ones, like, they'll take all the money you want to send them in Bitcoin, or whatever crypto you want to deposit, but you want it back, oh, for your safety, we can't let you. Uh, that's that is very predatory. Well, I think I think that although like even even that I'm, I don't agree with that practice either, to be honest, wherein you you know, you allow a certain I, like, I understand that it is acceptable, especially if they're transparent about it. And yeah. that for myself, I've utilized it like personally. So don't get me wrong. But I still think that I hope that the industry moves away from that convention because like at the end of the day, people should have an expectation towards your service and how much information you'll ever want to take, right? They should understand that if they use your service, this is the, this, you, you, you follow a model where you want all your users to, to disclose information, including their passport. And so by putting a soft barrier on that, all they're really doing is they're enticing you enough that at one point you have to follow their convention. And who knows whether, how government agencies and how your local government will address that right like what happens in the, in the issue of dispute what in, in the t's and c's are you reading about the level of liability that you get when you follow the model where you don't kyc yeah. so to me that, that's a big problem with it if it's not enforced technically which is what dexes do then it's still uh it's still a agreement between you and another entity and then they might be in a different country in a completely different league system so the, your yeah. ability to dispute is very low anyway it should be noted as well that on polarity 
the email registration is only if you want to use our additional security feature on top, which is completely free, right? Um, so people can access our exchange purely with a key. That, wow. It's called a, we call it a local account because then all the information, and you won't have two FA, you won't have any anything fancy like that. But we will not have even your email, and you can still access um, the the exchange services. Gotcha. So I, I agree with that. I think that like that's part of why my ruling with with exchanges has always been when I've needed to use a centralized exchange because that's they have what I'm trying to buy or whatever. Um, you move money in, you execute your transaction, get the hell off of there. Like I will not leave money sit on a, a centralized exchange at all. I do sometimes use them for their convenience, their liquidity, but as soon as the transaction's done, the money's off to one of my wallets. It's not sitting on there. Um, and I think most people who are sophisticated, that's what they're doing. But I think you're right. Like I think DEX exchanges are the future because they operate in a world that's very difficult for anybody to exert force against because you can't make somebody do something that they can't do. Right, so that's the that's the beauty of what Polarity is doing to me. Like the gut, why wouldn't Polarity do this if the government told them they had to? Because they can't. Right, that that's the best answer to give somebody trying to make you do something unless they're going to kill you if you don't do it. Right, I I can't, I you I can't do this for you. It's not possible. Here you go. You do it for yourself. We'll give you access to what we have. Go ahead. And and I think that's where Dex exchanges are moving toward. Yeah, I mean, th th this is I, I try to I try to avoid um, like when I operate in my daily life um, the the fallacy which is like appealing to authority, right? So why do you trust your banking system because they say that you should trust them? <laughs> why do you trust your government because they say you should trust them? Like, and so that's what a centralized exchange is actually doing. It's that although they're operating in the same cryptocurrency realm, um, you know, the the rules which you operate when you hit your when you put your money on there is now their rules. And you can't, I mean, some of them are more transparent than others, but you, there's no way for you to technologically verify that. Now, in saying that, you're 100% correct, centralized exchanges are so much further in terms of like services, mainly, um, just because of it, the systems are much easier to build if they're centralized. It's, it's, it's much easier because you dictate all the rules. Like, let's say in a loaning system, you get to dictate how much the, um, the lender knows about the borrower. Right. But in a decentralized system, you need to solve problems such as like the mechanism for both people agreeing that an action has happened. And so that's why centralized exchanges are so much further ahead. But I, I'm hoping that the decentralized model will slowly catch up from a functionality perspective. And that's what's going to close the gap. Gotcha. Um, how do you think people should um, protect their cryptocurrency? It was, what is kind of the safest way for people to hold it? It, it, I mean, there are. If, if you're just a person who's trying to get into cryptocurrency, and um, I guess from a perspective of holding it long term, you don't need to transact a lot with it. Then, you know, it, I do recommend, depending on which network you're on, and that's another problem as well with cryptocurrency, is that we're talking about a very, very broad platform of multiple different technologies. So it's hard to find a wallet that, that can contain all of them that does it in a decentralized way. The way Polarity Exchange works is we use wrapped tokens. And so when you send us funds, we give you a representative token of that fund from that network. And so you're operating on our network, which is, again, it's a public network, but it's a wrapped token instead. And so if you want to hold your assets on a wrapped token exchange, such as Polarity Exchange, then you can validate that you have, you do have a pool of assets 
and then you can two FA you can two FA secure it. If you're holding funds on let's say a network like Ethereum, unfortunately the best approach right now is still either hardware wallets or something called a multi-signature wallet where you require two signatures to access the funds. Um, and the, the one I, we use is uh, is Genosis. But um, at the end of the day, like the, with cryptocurrency, it's it's you, you, it is all about personal accountability, right? You got to understand what you're doing and what way you're doing it. So what, what you're doing, what currencies are you buying, where are you buying them, and where are you storing them? If you understand that and you understand the risks involved, then that's going to mitigate the danger already because you can see things like Mt. Gox coming from a mile away, right? Um, but definitely off exchange, and the general rule is not your keys, not your money. So unless you have the key to your wallet that you store your currencies, it is not your money. That's the rule. Gotcha. Um, are there some dangers that, you know, because everything sounds so wonderful when you're on the outside looking in of anything? A ton of, a ton of dangers, to be honest, because in some networks you can definitely make mistakes. So you can send cryptocurrency into the abyss. And that's very much so with like super privacy tokens. So I'll be very like starting off, although from a purely like, if you really value uh, privacy, uh, you know, Monero, Pirate Chain, um, these kind of tokens have, are, uh, have a very, very powerful mechanism to secure your privacy, and they're 100% legitimate. So they will protect you to the nth degree, and there's no way to prove um, relationships between transactions uh, unless you have a quantum computer. But um, they're very unusable, to be honest. I don't know about your own experience, Jack, but like trying to actually run your own node and propagate transactions in a, in a network that everyone is 100% private is very difficult because it, technologically it's very difficult. So I would start off with a more forgiving network um, and a more forgiving cryptocurrency like Ethereum or Bitcoin and slowly wade into it. Like don't start with $10 million, you know, <laughs> don't put your entire life savings into it. No. And at the same time, it's the same thing with exchanges. You know, my general rule with exchanges is that I'll use them maybe for uh, a month or so to see if I like it or not before I actually commit to it. Right? I, I look up what the KYC limits are, if they have any, if it's a centralized exchange, if it's a decentralized exchange, you're, you need to understand like how are they, like what are they actually decentralizing? How do you interact with the decentralized exchange? Um, but uh, use things like uh, MetaMask is also a very good product for if you're on Ethereum, which is the most popular one, um, um, popular, one of the most popular smart contract networks. But definitely the danger is in not knowing. Right. So you need to be, you need to know, you need to be involved until one day, hopefully we reach the, um, the dream, which is that a common user can use it without any issues at all. And they don't need to know anything. Like that is the dream. <laughs> and not, it has gotten better. It's a lot right. easier for a person on board today than it, than it was 10 years ago. It's, it's much easier. So I think we're getting much more user friendly as we move forward. And I think users are also rising in sophistication. It doesn't have to be completely simple, but if it looks like something you already know how to do, it, it gets simple. I think one of the big dangers also is there are exchanges that are not exchanges. Uh, there are all types of places you can put your money and earn a return where your money is never coming back. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is, has never been more true than it is in the world of cryptocurrency. I've seen with sites like, you know, minimum investment is 0.1 Bitcoin only and you get 3% a day on your money. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, that's a Ponzi scheme that's going to crash, and and they're going to take all your money. Um, there is a ton of shit like that out there, and I I really advise people to be careful before they trust anything. 
And, and, and yes, small amounts first is a good idea, but a small amount first that works is also the hallmark of, of the, of the kind of the, the, the scam artist. Right. So some of those things, like you put a little bit of money in and they'll, you know, they'll throw some money out to you try to take your original money back out. Be, be very careful and don't think just because like if you're in a social media group or something and it's mostly good people that are a part of that group, if something's posted in that group, that means that it, the group endorses it. Cause I've had that in one of my groups already. Like I, I try to moderate my groups as best I can, but like I saw this thing like a day after it was posted and most of the group had seen it. And like two people had got, sort of pseudo got it. Hurt. They didn't get hurt, but they were on the path to getting hurt. And I'm like, don't ever think just because something's in here that it's okay. And there's, there's so much like that out there. And some of it, when you hear the name of them, you're like, how could any, but, but they do or nobody would do it. So be really, really careful with stuff like that. In my opinion. It's, I mean, the, the amount of Ponzi schemes, I mean, any, anyone, I always advise anyone getting to cryptocurrencies and like, especially if you want to do things like yield farming or staking, um, or, or like all these magical systems where you send money and they guarantee your return because of reasons. Um, look up the story of BitConnect and just, yeah, uh, you'll, you'll see that because of the nature of the ecosystem we operate in, it's so easy to exit these kind of Ponzi schemes without any, like crazy ramifications. And so that's what happened with BitConnect. Um, they, they, they functionally just, they said that we'd redeem the token that they said was worth X amount. And they said they redeem it at another amount because they were exiting a, a, a Ponzi scheme functionally. And, um, you know, I feel really, really bad for anyone caught up in that, but you're hundred percent right. You know, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. I would, pre I'll, I'll preface that though with that. Not, not just on speculative value itself, but, There are mechanisms in the financial markets today, such as like um, loaning money, you know, mm -hmm. um, being the lender as opposed to the borrower, that in the conventional financial systems, it's opaque and there's a minimum barrier of entry. So you might need a certain amount of money before you can participate in that. Um, and the yields for that is much higher than your common bank account. Now, I'll leave it to your audience to research themselves as to which ones might be better than the others, but... Um, The, the, the current opportunity that I think people aren't understanding in cryptocurrency is that you can now – there are a lot of these systems that mimic traditional financial systems, but you can be the beneficiary of either sides of that transaction. So an example is there are very, very transparent lending platforms um, where it's very it, – obviously, there's risk because you're, you're, you're the lender or you're the borrower, um, but the results of that system and the – probability of getting your money back and the distribution and the management of the risk is very transparent and the yields are very, very, very high. And, that, and that's actually legit and people don't believe it because, you know, again, the, what you're saying about it being too good to be true. But the truth is, is that in the traditional financial, financial systems, that already exists. Like credit card companies get to loan you money at 25% yeah. interest rates yeah. and then get the government to enforce that. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> so this already exists. These yields already exist. Now you can just be a participant in a way that's much more transparent and equal, and you'll get fantastic returns even if you base on USD. Yeah, and I always say, like, don't put money into crypto unless it's money that you would be comfortable going out and buy a steak dinner for, with, and then next week you wouldn't worry about the fact you did it. When you do that, if it's money you would put on a table in Vegas, okay. Like, just be careful because it's not that those things aren't legitimate. Like you said, it's that you are inherently assuming the risk as the lender and you're not going to be able to go to the state and make somebody's bank account get garnished, right? That's, that's not going to be the recourse you have, but 
There are, and I think that this is the, the logical evolution of cryptocurrency, that if we're truly going to, because people say be your own bank, if we're going to do that, then we have to be able to actually get into a situation where we can look at a person's ability to repay a loan and they can get a mortgage in cryptocurrency. Until we're there, we're not our own bank. Or, or a person that wants to start a business and <clears throat> would go to a loan officer at you know, uh, you know, Sunny State Bank and get a, a small business loan. We need to get to where maybe it's not as rubber stamped because it's not government backed and, and kind of part of the, the, the fiat scheme, but that, that the functionality is there. That the person with the legitimate you know, collateral and ability to repay would then be serviced the way a bank would. And I think we're going to get there. I don't think it's tomorrow, but I think we're heading there. And I think kind of those things, because how do you initially entice that, that form of investor? You do it with a high ROI. And so people will generally take higher ROIs on risky plays, and the less risk, the more moderate ROI, and the more capital they have to invest, the more they want to diversify between the two extremes. Like, You'll take you know a six percent return, which is a fair return for you know a, a, a one year a lend if it's not all your money, right? If it's a, a small piece of your money, and, and so I think that's where we're headed with that. Yeah, and and, and to be fair though, um, like that rate might be it's it's more uh, assured than you know your bank account rate, which is fluctuating, right? So, yeah, and it might so, be your bank account savings right now is under one percent. So yeah, <laughs> it's. I mean, the, the, the rules of, um, like the blockchain, uh, like the, like the laws of physics, right? So, um, you know, tomorrow there might be technological changes where we can overcome the rules and we can improve upon them. Um, just as, you know, although we all participate, we all are restricted by gravity, but we can now fly, you know, mm -hmm. but because the, the rules are set and they're transparent, it means that the, the operating model and the paradigm for which we interact with each other is now completely different. Like me and Jack, if we want to send money to each other, the the, the intermediary now doesn't need to appeal to authority. Nope. Nope. They appeal to me and your understanding of the system. Yep. And so, you know, if, I'm I'm a person who believes that um, you want to promote people to understand the system. You don't want them to be okay with just black holes of of information and processes because that that that's what breeds corruption. That's what breeds uh, complacency. And at the end of the day, a lot of these, like if you look historically. A lot of these systems end up failing, so you know. And I think we'll see the point where, like, maybe you'll see some form of insured underlying principle, where you have a larger investor that gets a slightly larger share of the uh, ROI, and then smaller investors make up a pool that, and this might already exist because it's so simplistic in its 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 concept. Then, as the smaller investor, I know that you know half of my underlying investment is covered, and that can be done with smart contracts, to where the original larger investor can't back out, right? Because the the money's locked into this, and it pays out over a period of time as the the loans were paid. There's a the the, the amount of ways this stuff can be structured is is almost limitless, and and it it's this is why when we were talking earlier about how governments eventually will kind of just fully get on board, since you can't stop it. Right. Since you can't prevent it, at, at some point you you adopt it because it's just easier that way. And then governments, to me, always respond to lobbyists. And so now that the big money is getting involved, the institutional money's coming in. Well, now it's their money too. So now they don't they don't want it to go away, right? Like when you start seeing major uh, financial institutions buying Bitcoin, 
they're the people that have the lobbyists that go write the actual laws that the, the Congress or, or whatever passes. So I think we're in a point now where like that we've turned that corner. It's just not immediately apparent to everybody yet. I mean, I, but to add to that though, like I can also see why there's also still a long path ahead because yeah. we're inherently talking about a system that will completely shake up uh, companies like Visa. I mean, the, yeah, the entire transaction processing platform is completely redundant if we implement this on a actual, like, if every, if every, and if you look at the history with American Express and Visa and MasterCard, like, that's a perfect example, right? It's a, um, but, uh, for your audience who aren't aware, uh, functionally, because if you own the ecosystem, right, you can prevent adoption. And so there are a lot of companies that their inherent interest is to stop this because yeah. they're the beneficiaries of the current system. This yeah. black hole that I'm describing, I mean, they profit from it. That's, that's what it is. So this is why, this is where, um, people being informed about the differences and, and trying to actually just, even if you just, even if you just tr try buying $10 of Bitcoin or $10 of Ethereum and move it around, I think you're already an advocate for just a more, a, uh, a society with just more informed individuals, right? Just, just be a bit more informed. Like make one transaction. And if you don't like it, if you don't like how much setup it took, I, I still applaud you for giving it a go and understanding and, and trying to understand the difference. Yeah. I mean, kind of looking at it again, I, I was trying to look this up here. I'm not sure what it is, but I, I'm betting if we're going to have a finance system that actually replaces the banking system, it has to get a lot bigger um, because I don't think if you used every cryptocurrency that existed in the world right now, you could issue mortgages equivalent to the mortgages in the United States alone. Oh, no way. I don't know what the total – I tried to get a quick answer on, on, on DuckDuckGo, and I didn't. And I don't want to pull a number out of my ass here, but it's, it's in the trillions of dollars, and we're sub-trillion on the total market cap. So well, the, that, that is why the Visas, the MasterCards, the Bank of Americas, the Rothschilds, et cetera, that's why they still have control because you couldn't do it if it was totally okay. Like it was totally legal, and even if they said, go ahead – Like, you don't have enough to make that happen in the current situation. You have to have this complete disruption is what you're talking about. And it's, I, like I said, I feel that the corner's turned, but it's still a long, bumpy-ass road. Yeah, I mean, there are services, like, there, um, fiat wrap tokens are definitely going to be the catalyst. So I don't think USD, um, I don't think, like, the yen or Australian dollar, these things, these concepts are going to go away. I actually think they're just going to be tokenized and integrated in the ecosystem, which is already happening, right? Like, I think it's the third or fourth largest token is actually just a USD-backed token. Um, and then there's uh, and then the, there's other ones like TUSD. So there are multiple versions of USD being published in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. And so even if you want to spend USD, you can you can choose which mechanism of that value attributing so whether it's one-to-one -one backed whether it's um because of a certain amount of adoption and circulation of a token that adds validity you can choose and vote for which version of your currency is valid on the cryptocurrency network and i'm really i'm re it's really sad to me that um most governments have not instead deci have decided not to instead publish their own cryptocurrency and, and regulate it like that but allowing their currency to participate and so these third-party providers have sprung up instead because it, I think it would accelerate adoption substantially if you, you had an official USD that was backed by the government on like the cryptocurrency ecosystem, right? Because that would just, people would know that they can come in and out as easily as they come in and out of the banking system. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So let's hit a couple more things on on a, a polarity directly, and we'll go ahead and, and wrap up. One, you guys seem to use like your base currency for trading is Tether. Why why did you do that? Um, so th there's a lot of questions around like Tether and the reserve amount. Um, they're not as transparent as systems like TUSD, and um, but the main issue for us is. Um, That we have to balance between different uh, kind of principles, right? So everything like architecturally is a trade-off. And so UCT is the highest level of adoption of stable tokens, and the alternatives have very, very sm small amount of market share. Um, and so that's why we functionally chose UCT because um, people do argue about what the actual reserve amount is, um, and we've read the reports and we, we 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 keep up to date with any news coming out of there so that we can keep our users protected. But at the end of the day, um, nothing has been substantiated wherein they have um, that they're functionally a scam or anything like that. And so we think that, that because of the amount of adoption they have in the ecosystem, we use them. But it doesn't stop us in the future from potentially releasing a alternative market with a different type of um, uh, base uh, price currency. Gotcha. Do do you do you see like an implosion coming of, of Tether? And if, or if y'all did, what would be your recourse? How would you, because I just did a thing on this. I'm getting, and I, I think there's a ton of FUD around Feather, uh, Tether. I did a, a video yesterday that used the F word quite a bit in uh, people freaking out about it. Uh, but there's this belief that like, not only is Tether going to fail, but it's going to make Bitcoin fail, which is just retarded. But what I said is if an exchange has a Tether board, if you want to call it that, um, If, even if they have multiple boards, if they got to a point where they felt like they lost confidence in Tether, they could just use a different reserve currency for their trading. Well, that, that's also the important element of why our system is much more transparent because we only have as much Tether as people have deposited. Okay. So tomorrow, if, if Tether becomes um, invalid, everyone will withdraw the Tether. We, it's not like we back our currency, our personal reserves with Tether. No, I got you. So... Yeah, so so we only ever hold exactly what people deposit to us is exactly what we hold, and that's auditable. And so um, we, it's not like our company is inherently invested into Tether as, as an ecosystem. It just happens to be the pair that we first supported. Well, and it makes sense, too. It's it's There would be some stable coin, and it would probably be the stable coin that served the largest number of your users, right? Because the problem with trading Bitcoin for alternative currencies, unless you want to do it now at this current price, is I've got two moving targets, right? So when I put a limit order in, I, I want to lock in what I want to pay for, let's say, I don't know, DOT, right, or whatever. doesn't matter what I'm buying, uh, ARC or whatever. I'm gonna, I want to lock in that price. Well, if I'm using Bitcoin as a purchase and I'm using a limit order, I can get into a situation where some major fluctuation on one side causes the trade to act, go through or fail to go through. You, you see what I'm saying? When, I, when, I'm, when I'm anchored into a stable coin, that's, that's the purpose of them in the first place. Like this, this mythology that Bitcoin will crash because of it is this somebody somewhere decided that people onboard into Bitcoin with Tether. Like I, no, it's for intertrade holding, right? It's, it's to create that stable environment when I'm playing the up and down as a trader. And I, I, I don't know how we've gotten to a point where the industry even believes that Tether is essential to other cryptocurrencies or to trading, like that there's nothing else that can act as that reserve. It doesn't make any sense. 
Yeah, exactly. Especially because it literally just represents one USD. So yeah. it's completely, it's completely replaceable. At the end of the day, like obviously if you're a USDT holder, um, if this circumstance was to happen, then obviously you might, any, any funds you have that you're holding USDT, um, you might only be able to reclaim 70% of it, or you might be able to reclaim all of it, or maybe all of it gets locked up by some government organization. I don't know. So yeah. but that happens to be the case with kind of any, uh, any stable coin, right? Because ideally they hold a reserve and then there's algorithmic stable coins, which is maybe another topic we can discuss at another time. But, yeah. um, the, the, it's a problem inherently. And that's, I don't, I mean, why would you hold USDT as a long-term asset? <laughs> no one would. You could just hold, you could just hold USD, which is backed yeah. by the government, which the, the issues the government, which that issues the actual currency, right? So, yeah. um, I find, I find that kind of, uh, the, the kind of extrapolation that people say, Oh yeah, USDT going uh, going bust is going to drive Bitcoin uh, you know, to zero. I mean, uh, it's just ridiculous. Well, I mean, Bitcoin really came into its own it was about 2011, and Tether didn't get on any exchanges until like mid 2015. So how did it survive without it for you know half of its life? That 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 would just be the basic logical common sense analysis. I honestly think a lot of the FUD, Tether, and otherwise is an attempt to manipulate the market by people with a with a voice box. And sometimes a person that's sounding the loudest alarm doesn't look that important or that influential, but a lot of people are paid to do a lot of things. So I just, you know, you can you can go pay pay people to do really bad things or things they wouldn't normally do and they'll do it. So getting them to put out a medium blog post or something, it's not that hard. Uh you can even convince them that they're right, that they're doing the right thing, that they're telling the truth, but it doesn't pass logical sense to me at all. I guess my other question was about uh, time of transactions. So the one nice thing about something like a centralized exchange is, in general, if I just want this transaction done, I can go in and put a market order in, and it's lightning fast. Like before the page reloads, I've already got the new asset. Uh, and then once that clears, I can go ahead and withdraw it usually within an hour or less. Um when I've done some trades on polarity, sometimes they take a while, and that's because there has to be somebody on the other side of that trade immediately for it to execute. Um, how does that is that is that true across the board? Is that true of maybe more minor currencies that don't have as much trading volume, uh, you know, what have you? Because it, it doesn't seem like liquidity is is controlled by anything other than a buyer. Yeah, I mean there are. I mean there are depending on the currency. So some currencies there are smaller spreads. Um, and so your, your, whatever price you want to purchase at, you know, more like, if it's within that spread, you're more likely to execute. And then there are, I mean, because we inherently support a lot of tokens that have a very small market cap, um, because we, we, we like to think that, you know, for us, they don't pay a large, like, to, just to give an example, to list on some of these centralized exchanges, it, probably the cheapest, um, one of these top centralized exchanges is probably at least a hundred thousand dollars, um, to list, right? Plus, probably a certain amount of your supply of the token. And so for us, you know, we don't believe in kind of that um, that model. And so we we offer, and you also have to qualify a certain amount of things as well. So for us, we, we support a lot of small cap tokens. And as a result, those marketplaces are, have less participants. And because we're a DEX, uh, we rely on, well, actually most exchanges, unless you're talking about liquidity pools, but most exchanges re- require buyers and sellers to participate to keep a liquid market. Now, in the back end, we do try to help facilitate that those mechanisms by having our own buyers and sellers be able to um, create walls for people to buy into. Um, but that that's, will slowly go away as we hit the larger and larger sizes. And so for our larger currencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, the most 
common ones, I mean, the spreads are very, very small there, so you won't have that kind of problem. But for currencies such as like maybe Pirate Chain, um, you like you like R, you might experience, uh, you might have to wait a bit, or you have to might, might buy at a, a higher price than maybe what you originally expected. But it also goes the other way, right? Like you could also sell at a, a higher, higher price, price than yeah. you expected as well. Yeah. So it's just it's just normal market operations, and for me. The important part is that um, that's why we don't actually implement market buy yet because we understand that a user might not be looking at the order books. And so if they do a market buy, they might buy way out of market price. Yeah. So we force users to set a limit. Yeah. At one point, we will probably enable market buying for all of these markets. But um, even on even on centralized exchanges, a lot of these smaller currencies don't move uh, don't move fast enough to keep a small spread. So I've experienced the same thing that you've experienced on larger on centralized exchanges as well. Um, but you're, you're correct. I mean, most of the liquidity generally circulating on exchanges are, is occurring on centralized exchanges. Full stop. Uh, ironically, we're, we're like we just 80% answered a question that came in from another episode on, on, on the, the site. While you were answering, a guy wrote in and he said, uh, I, I know this probably sounds ridiculous, but wondering if you can show the best way to purchase Bitcoin, Monero, Ethereum, Pirate, etc. I'm confused with Cake Wallet and Coinbase not covering certain coins. Where to go about getting coins other than BTC, Litecoin, etc. So I think there's a lot of people that don't understand that. Like, why doesn't this wallet have this currency in it? Or why doesn't this exchange sell it? Like, it's not, it doesn't work that way. It's not like, you know, Bill comes up with Billcoin and then tomorrow it's just everywhere. Right, the getting into wallets, getting onto exchanges, is a hurdle, and it also is a big expense. And and the way you guys are operating doesn't mean that everybody will be there, but it means that more people will be there overall because it's an easier on ramp for them to get in there. Like one of the things I've seen, we've mentioned R a few times, and it's a big thing with my audience. They're very into it because it's such a privacy coin, um, but. You know, you're asking exchanges to deal with a coin with mandatory ZSNARK addresses, where that's that's never been done before. Like, you can buy Zcash, sure, but when you buy Zcash on Bitrix, the privacy function is not enabled because it's privacy by option, right? That's one of its inherent weaknesses. By locking it down, they've made it more complicated for exchanges, right? And then the government has scrutiny and says, well, we don't really, you know, maybe we'll revoke your license if you allow this. Where, again, you guys are operating in a different country, different set of rules, and in a totally different manner. Where you're more facilitating the action between individuals than holding a central pot of currency. Yeah, and I think that um, for your users, uh, understanding that technologically, each of these tokens the native network is completely different. Mm. I mean, people don't really appreciate that. They treat it. It's not the same thing as like, uh, and this is uh, funnily enough. We, 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 the reason why we designed all our pairs to be based UCT is because when I was talking to our, um, my CBO, whose name is Nathan Sharp, um, I was, I was explaining to him why we should do this. And I explained to him like, you wouldn't go on, you wouldn't buy shares by buying one Apple with two Microsofts. Right, like that's not yeah, just how yeah, people yeah, think. Yeah. Like people yeah. don't think about it like that. So, so that's why we, we made it USDT. But um, the, people don't realize that every single one of these currencies sit on a technologically different platform. It's like imagine if they they, they all sat on a different internet. Mm-hmm. And so our exchange sits in the as an intersect between these different internets, so that um, you can hold all these currencies in one place uh, in a wrapped way. But 
on a technical level, each of these tokens are actually physically on a different network. Like they don't exist, and, and there's exceptions to this because some networks you can publish other tokens. But like yeah. example, you can't buy Ethereum on Bitcoin because the Bitcoin network only supports the Bitcoin token. Full stop. Correct. Correct. That's that's something people don't get. Like they're different. So there's a different network for Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, but at least they're the same underlying, principally the same. If you look at something like Lisk, right, it, 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 it's, it's a different universe from Bitcoin. And then ARK and Lisk can, can, can coexist on blockchains, right? But they can't exist on a, a Bitcoin network. And a, 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 a Monero is, is a, using rig signatures does not go on an Ethereum network. Like these things don't work that way. So it's, it's not just different networks. It's entirely, it's like different networks and entirely different worlds and at times entirely different universes. And it exchanges challenges to, to bridge all that together. And I like the pairing to a common pair. And that's why you'll notice, like, other than swap sites, which are doing everything behind the scenes, um, any exchange, centralized or otherwise, will have a certain number of pairs. They'll have one or they'll have, like, you know, they might have a, 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 a pairing with Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Tether. Like, that's very common in a lot of exchanges. And, and they do that because you can't do it across the board all the time and make everybody happy. Like any business, one of your primary goals is for the customer service to be excellent because it's infrequent, right? They, like the, the, the best customer service department will still look miserable uh, in performance if they have to be used all the time, all the time, all the time, right? The less they get used, the more time they can take to solve a problem. So every time you add a board and a pair, you had another potential problem and another bucket of customer service, you know, anger. And and no no one ever calls customer service because they're happy. <laughs> no, no, never. <laughs> I can tell you that personally. I mean, no. it's, it's, it's really funny because it's proportional to your, customer, your user base, right? So yeah. as we get more users, it appears as if we just have more angry users, but really it's just because our overall user base is getting bigger. If 1% are angry and you have 100 people, you have one angry person. Right. And that one every person is either easy to fix because you can devote resources to it or you realize, okay, this this person is to not be a customer anymore. And when they say I'm taking my business elsewhere, you go, thank you. I appreciate that. I use that often. Uh, but when you have a you know, hundred thousand customers and one percent are angry, that's 10,000 pissed off people. Right. Or about thousand pissed off people. That's a little harder. And then figuring out which ones are like. Okay, this person's angry because we did something wrong. This person's angry because they don't even know what cryptocurrency is. That's hard to do then. So, yeah, I, I like paring it down. To, at least you got down to that one thing, and I, I'm glad to hear that you guys would, would have a migration path if you needed it. That's, that's, that's really important. So, man, I've enjoyed talking to you guys today, uh, or to you today, I should say you, not your guys. Um, this has been great. I have one last question for you, and it may have changed – Since you uh, filled out the guest form, do you think Bitcoin will keep going up? Because, well, it was at a different price point then than it is now. <laughs> like, so it's it's funny because full disclosure, at like maybe two years ago, I was betting against Bitcoin and and, and voting for Bitcoin Cash. Okay. Right? <laughs> um, but I, I inherently like why I love the cryptocurrency ecosystem because it's it's the ultimate form of democracy, but weighted by actual risk. So how much do you how much do you believe that Bitcoin is the correct system? How much do you believe that Bitcoin Cash is the correct system? You get a vote with your money, and it's proportionate to how much you're willing to vote, right? Yeah. And so to me, it's the ultimate democratic system wherein there's no national lines, there's no global lines, there's no 
uh, religion, there's no sex, there's nothing. It's just who do you, which system, which currency system, which technology do you believe in the most? And then you put your money behind it as a, as a vote of confidence. And with Bitcoin, it has the most votes evidently. And I think that I've changed my mind now two years ago. And I, I think that as from a long-term perspective, it's going to keep growing and it's going to basically become, I, I, unfortunately for me, because again, I, I stopped voting for it, um, <laughs> the, the version of, you know, cryptocurrency gold because it's, it's so far down the adoption path. It's, it's also why, same reason why we justify using USDT. It's just so far down the adoption path. It's the brand name. You, you know, know, it's so powerful. Yeah. I think it's got first mover advantage and I don't think that's going away. I think it's also the most of, of the mainstream cryptocurrencies, the most fundamentally, fundamentally limited in supply. Um, even though Bitcoin Cash sort of is the same but different, you know. Um, my my issue with Bitcoin Cash has always been the entire argument of Bitcoin Cash is it works better as money. And I'm like, yeah, so does Litecoin, so does Dash, so does like every other cryptocurrency that ever came after Bitcoin has lower transaction fees and faster times. So what? You're wiser than me. So what? <laughs> exactly. So what? This is what I, yes. this is what I, I missed out on two years ago. This, yeah. I, this is the, the fundamental principle that I, I didn't really, I, I believe that because of the backing of Bitcoin Cash yeah. and the way that the forking was happening, yeah. it, it, there was a potential that there would be a shift, but you're correct. I mean, it was the forking wars, right? You know, it was the forking wars, the forking wars, right? And I knew that was coming and I knew it was going to hit hard. Uh, but what I did when the split hit, I watched, and when like Bitcoin Cash got, I think I didn't hit the top, but it was like fifteen hundred bucks. I sold all of the one, all the Bitcoin Cash I got from the fork, and when it went down into like the six hundred fifty somewhere in that range, I bought back exactly what I sold, so I reestablished my position, and I took all of the extra and I threw it into Bitcoin. And people told me I was a dumbass and didn't know what I was doing, and it was like, all right, wait, we'll see. And I just. I, I just, as a marketer that's been in marketing now, I'm almost 50 years old, and I've been in marketing for most of my life, if not marketing and sales. I just understand that first mover advantage is a bitch to turn over. It really is. And I think the the way you know that, and the people are still clinging to the, but it's better money argument. Show me an exchange where BCH is a trading pair. No, no. It doesn't exist. All right, so <laughs> you've lost, right? Somewhere, but... You've lost. And if you, I agree. If you want to buy a $5 coffee and a scone, it's absolutely a better way to do things. If you want to hold there, money in reserve, then it's it's not. There are, there are even better things than Bitcoin Cash, to be honest. Like the Bitcoin network technology is not as fast as other networks out no. there, right? I um, mean, it has no, adop- it has that, no like, adoption, right? There's no adoption to it at all as far as retail but our cryptocurrency, you without you know enabling rapid send or whatever the hell they call it in BCH, eight seconds because it's a proof of stake network. Eight seconds and it's there. So if you wanted something that was quick with low transaction fees, it's impossible to beat. It also trades for like forty freaking cents. And I bet on that one. That's one of my losing horses, and it's not going anywhere. Um, yeah, I agree. You know, I think that, that I, I hold that little bit that I have because the team. Right, and I think the team's doing more than any other team I know in crypto. But unless they land a big one, it's it's kind of languishing. But it just because it's better to send money with doesn't mean it's better as a cryptocurrency. Because each each thing in life serves its purpose. You want shitty money? Gold is shitty money, right? Without some derivative to represent it, like okay, uh, 
I owe uh, Tony fifty uh, bucks, and I have this gold bar. This is it's the shittiest money in the world for that, right? Like, how am I going to get? What am I going to file off fifty dollars worth of gold, put it in an envelope, and mail it to you, right? Like, it's terrible money. I I I'm not going to get rid of the gold that I hold either, though, right? It has a different purpose, and I think Bitcoin has secured for now and for the foreseeable future its role is that reserve currency for cryptocurrency. That's why if you look at it, it's like half the volume of everything else put together. Yeah, yeah. I think I think though that um, there will be some sort of uh, whether it's a smart contract token mm-hmm. or whether it's a, a dedicated token. I think it's more more likely to be a smart contract token that serves a specific utility, whether it's a financial security that enables margin trading or some sort of fractional loan system. Mm-hmm. That because of the market cap of, of cryptocurrencies as a whole is so small that that one currency will have enough utility that it will eclipse all the others. I think that is very likely to happen, and that can't happen with Bitcoin because technologically Bitcoin can ever be just an agreement of consensus of something of value, right? But um, if you developed a token that and ha- that had an actual utility that replaced a fundamental need in society, the market cap of cryptocurrency is so small that as long as you know, if you can make one one Apple or one Microsoft level utility token, and, and that's very difficult, mm-hmm. possible, um, that will eclipse all other tokens. To me, that's going to have to have some element of back end uh, balancing and probably some portfolio of proven cryptos with different volatility scales, so that they even out and create less volatility within that base asset. Like I think that's. That's something I've always said. I, I'm actually a big. We're going off topic here, and we do need to wrap up. But I've always been a big fan, eventually, of the concept of what I've termed virtual nations. I started using that term. I, I think I, I never claimed to be the first of something if I can't prove it. But I think I was the first person to start using. I started using that term back in 2011. Virtual nations, where people would basically take the tribal concept that's been really bad and turn it into something good, and basically amass together. And then work together, and 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 bank together, and lend together, and invest together uh, in this kind of virtual country that they would voluntarily associate with, instead of being labeled by birth or by their way into. And that the only way that would ever fully work would be some sort of like, yeah, you could call it like you know, if you called it Libertas, you could call it Liberty Coin or whatever, sure. But that asset itself would have to have some sort of fundamental multi-asset backing that was examinable and trustable. Like, you'd know that for at a minimum, this thing will never be worth less than the sum total of these five other assets or whatever put together. And I think what you're talking about may be a different application, but it's the same type of thinking. Like, you can't just create a token like that because millions of, well, millions, thousands of them have already been, and have it just do that on its own. It has to have some sort of additional insurance, I guess, right? Like, Because you know exactly. Bitcoin's not exactly. going to be worth zero tomorrow. You don't know what it's going to be worth, but you know it's... If somebody said, you know what, your Bitcoin's going to be worth zero tomorrow, but I'll give you 50 bucks for, for a Bitcoin, you know what you'd tell them? Shove it way up that ass, right? Like, no way, no mm. how, no chance. So these, there are cr- cryptos that have this... It, people can agree there's probably a floor to as low as they would go. You know, and they might be wrong, but Confidence is what makes any currency work anyway. It's it's a belief system. It's it's hard to understand. Like, because what is Bitcoin really? 
it's numbers. It's numbers, but it... What is any currency? Right, it's just numbers. <laughs> what is any currency? It's just numbers, my friend. There's, 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 there's tribes in the South Pacific that have used the same stones for money that have never moved for millennia, right? And it works for them because they believe in it, right? And that's all that it comes down to. But people believe in it because it's the biggest reason it can't be counterfeited. And it is inflation-proof. You can't just make more like central banks do. And still, it's just, what was it worth five years ago? What was it worth ten years ago? And, and fundamentally, it's no different now than it was then as a thing. It's as more people adopted confidence and more competition for the underlying asset drove the price up relative to native currencies. And yeah, I, I'm really digging what you're saying there because I think that some way, somehow, that is going to happen. I just don't know. If I knew, you and I'd be working on it right now, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but if, like, like example, like if, if you were, if, if a nation state tomorrow, started issuing um like oh, yeah. you know a lot of countries have like land tax right yeah or, and, and how, how do you record uh your ownership of land by a piece of paper that they issue to you in some database that's stored in some guy's oh. server room so you know if, if one day someone was able to agree with the government to uh encapsulate that value in, in into a blockchain Shit. or a smart contract token what is the value of that token so I mean, all just, private a system so all private and public lands within the nation of tonyville are secured with a blockchain. That blockchain asset itself then becomes massive overnight, even from the tiniest country, right? That that's yeah. So it's like real estate coin kind of in a way, but it's but it would be a state backed thing. So the interesting thing there, take that with virtual nations and, and that people um, then back their their property in some way with that asset. And the only way to do that would be to create a lending network where people actually were buying it that way in the first place like it becomes its own title service then that's yeah, interesting I mean, that's i mean that's that's all it really is just a, it, like it, this we're just talking conceptually here yeah i know that we're running out of time so yeah 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 but um yeah i mean the the land tax you pay in australia is a, a certain percentage of the entire property yeah right? and so every single time a transaction is made on this blockchain like you're talking twenty, fifty thousand dollars, then gets injected into the entire network. So if that's and 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 the Australian property market circulates like crazy, and so if you're talking about a like if you just to take all that money, remove all the people because you don't need people to tr to process this anymore, no. and instead just pump that money into the network, that token would be worth I think more than the entire cryptocurrency market combined because the value of the the property just is appreciating like crazy. Um, I don't know if I've ever been so excited and scared in all my life because now I realize the power it would give the government, but I also realize the power that it could give to people that voluntarily did that. Like The one thing I think about crypto that excites me is that no matter what the state can do evil with it, the, the private sector, if you want to call it that, the, the, the hackerverse can move faster. Like This is like the state has always had the advantage in every battle. When it comes to a battle of blockchain technology, I don't think that... I think at some point they have to play ball to win. Like they can't just overpower, overtake. Like because somebody will do something different. And, and two guys in a garage that dropped out of MIT, right? They're going to do something that they can't even conceive of because the thinking of a system where you have the power will always be limited, right? The 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 the, the ingenuity in that system will always stagnate. Bureaucracies create what they call the iron law of bureaucracy, where the people that have the most control do the least. And the people that are dedicated to the mission end up on the marginal sidelines, where in a decentralized place, it's meritocracy. 
So the people that have the greatest say in how a blockchain runs are the people that actually like contribute to the freaking blockchain. And, I, I think there's a there's a there's a middle ground in that though, wherein I think people should advocate for their government to just improve transparency through blockchain technology. Like like not even. Like people, there's an argument that a nation state needs to exist because then they can coordinate the defense of that specific nation. Correct. Right. And so the the delegation of power is required because individually, if we started, you know, coordinating our army in a democratic way, it wouldn't really work. And I I, I agree with that that statement. However, um, first and foremost, blockchain technology provides transparency, and any government that does not um, want more transparent operations to me is a corrupt one. That's the only That would be all of them, I'm just saying, but yeah. All right. <laughs> but I mean, imagine the problems it could solve. Like this recent election in the United States, and I, by the way, I don't participate in what I call the slave suggestion box, so I don't, I don't have a dog in this hunt. I do feel that it is probable that there was fraud in this election sufficient to, to change it. Right? I'm not saying it's definite, I'm saying it's probable. I know there was fraud. I've seen conclusive hard fact-based evidence of fraud that you can't, but it's also been said, ah, it's not really real, right? If you had voting on a blockchain, just that alone, at least you would be able to have independent people verify the vote. Like, you wouldn't have, you'd have problems. They're not going to go away. I don't believe in utopias or nirvanas. But you would have a hell of a lot more confidence in the results of things like elections. Estonia seems like they're really close to this already with, you know, the way they're doing things. However, I, again, I'm back. We'll have to wrap up there because now you're talking about giving another power to the state, which I, I will always oppose. I don't care how transparent it is. You just get to see how bad you're getting screwed, in my opinion. But um, that's not really the subject today. I, I Again, I want to reiterate, Tony, I really appreciate you taking this much time with us And I want to say that I wholeheartedly endorse uh, Polarity Exchange as a place to trade uh, cryptocurrency. And I think that if people try it, there'll be a little bit of a learning curve if you're new to DEX exchanges. But I think you'll you'll be happy with it. And I would still say start small, not because I don't trust Polarity or your team, because I don't trust the user to always get things right up front. And I think you would agree, people need to go slowly initially until they put the training wheels back on the bike, ride the bike with the training wheels, make sure you're not going to hurt yourself, and then take the training wheels off is, is where I'm going with that. Really, really appreciate that, Jack, and we really appreciate you both as a user, but also that you allow us on this platform, you know, that helps us, you know, have, portray our message and, and help spread what we believe in. Um, and to, to your point, though, um, the team at the moment is working on um, the next release And in the next release, and, the, and I think it's going to be released tomorrow, actually, um, users who sign up and, and verify using their email, again, just your email, no passport, will receive um, one of our – we created a new token called the Polarity Ticket Token. And there's no value attributed to it, but what you can do is you can use that token to participate in a DAP slot machine-like or jackpot-like um, uh, DAP so decentralized application, which will give you a probability to win a certain amount of USDT. Okay. And so the reason why we're doing that, we're doing that is because we want people to give it a try without having to pay anything at all, right? So you can verifiably look at the probability of winning any of these prizes. And when you do the execution, you can see the signed transaction. And that means that the friction for a user just being a bit more informed about this technology is now 
zero. Like there's no cost to it. You don't need to do any bank accounts. You just need to have an email address. Okay. Um, how does that affect existing users? Well, for existing users, we're implementing a also a referral code system. Okay. Um, so if you share a referral code, you'll be able to um, – anyone who signs up using it, maybe you can share your own referral code. Um, you'll be able to gain a certain amount of tickets per where, person that signed where, up. Where do I where do I obtain that? They just log in and it's there. Or when, where do I obtain this referral code? <laughs> the, the release notes are going to be released uh, tomorrow. So okay, uh, right. uh, in the next couple of hours, actually. Right. So maybe so, we'll be able to get this so, so none of y'all that are not on Polarity sign up today. Tomorrow, I will give you a referral code. Seriously, if you're going to sign up, go ahead. But um, I, I, I would love that opportunity. So I'll make sure that, that when, when that's available to me that I, I put that out there. Don't don't wait on me for it, guys. If you want to get started, go ahead. Uh, dude, thank you very much. That's exciting. I, did, I didn't know that was coming. Yeah, it was actually something that um, coincided with our with this podcast. And I didn't – sorry, I didn't give you a heads up. Otherwise, we would have – because we actually finished it early. And okay. so it makes it convenient to, because you mentioned the difficulty in trying it out. So, um, but uh, I'll, I'll work with the team and I'll see. Maybe we'll be able to get get this podcast out with your referral code, and uh, and it'll be and then so you'll be able to also be able to know kind of how many users are able to like try because you'll be credited with the amount of tickets, right? All right, all right, I appreciate that. Yeah, it is. It is a very like again. It's it's a, it's just a game, right? It's, yeah, it's not I get it. Game. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I, I, I'm not. Re- that's why I said if if it ain't there, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll put a link to Polarity Exchange in the show notes today, and uh, if I end up with that code tomorrow, I'll change it, and it's it's no big deal. Again, Tony, man, thank you. I know it's late where you are, um, and, and just for the users that are going to ask, where where's we'll wrap up with this? Where's Polarity headquartered at, and why? So at the moment we're headquartered in um, North Cyprus, and North Cyprus is kind of one of those um, legal zones where it 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 means that we can um, operate within certain parameters and we're not subject to you know specific restrictions. Obviously we try to abide by as many, but internationally it's very difficult to operate any kind of service, right? Especially if you deal potentially with legal areas that aren't clearly defined, and so a lot of different uh, ex- uh, cryptocurrency businesses are registered in North Cyprus. It's very common. Um, but our team, I'm based in uh, UAE, and we have team a team member based in Brazil. We have uh, US-based uh, team members as well. Um, so we're all over the place. Some some people in Europe, we're all over the place. We're very decentralized. Everyone gets paid in cryptocurrency. So you know, we're trying to live. We're trying to li- live our vision. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And I'll just last pitch for uh, Polarity. I've used you a few times. I've used your customer service never. That means you're doing a good job. The less I have to contact customer service reps, the, the better off I am. So, uh, uh, Tony, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much, Jack. Have a good one. Yeah, to me that was that was one of the best interviews in a very very long time. It, to say it was the best interview this year is is to undersell it since we're only on the 27th of the first month. I think it's the second or third interview of the year. So that 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 would just not even be fair. One of the best interviews and I would say it was probably if not definitely the best episode we've done on cryptocurrency ever. And like I said in the intro, I have I've told Tony they're welcome back anytime. That unlike people that usually have to wait in line for a month to two months to get on the show, I would work them in if they ever have anything really exciting to talk about. So, guys, I, again, I can't recommend them highly enough. Um, if you if you value your privacy, you know, start working with and start learning about decentralized exchanges, especially of all of them. This was the one that I found that was the best. When I heard from Drave at Pirate Chain. 
that, that he endorsed this exchange specifically. I knew. I knew. Because I knew the caliber I was dealing with then, the caliber I would be dealing with on the other side of it. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that we do, and you want to help support us, one of the great ways that you can do that is what? Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you shop at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, whether it's something we've got listed there or not, as long as you start there, you help support us. Today's item of the day is the Greater Goods Digital Pocket Scales, $10 little scale. Measures in grains and grams and what have you. Really, really accurate bugger. Um, I'm shocked at how accurate it is for $10. Bucks. I got it for doing uh, hydroponics. Uh, I have other digital scales that weigh much larger amounts, but as you go up in uh, capacity, you go down in accuracy at the very small increments like grains and grams. And uh, you kind of really do need, if you're doing hydroponics and you're using a dry mix, you really need to be weighing it. You can't really do volumetric measurement at those small levels. And uh, it works great for that. When I got it, I'm like, well, how accurate is it? And I tested it with bullets, right? I tested it with bullets from, from 35 grain, 22 calibers, all the way up to the big old thumb-sized hunks of lead that I chunk out of my 40, 4570, 405 grains. And it was accurate on all of them. There was a couple, I just started grabbing them and randomly checking them, that were maybe a grain off, and it's more likely that bullet was a half a grain off and rate a grain lower or higher than the scale itself was off. But pill after pill after pill, if you're not familiar with reloading terminology, we call it bullets pills. Pill after pill after pill was exactly where it was supposed to be or within a grain. That is incredible accuracy on a $10 scale. Again, it's made by a company called Greater Goods. I learned about it from a hydroponics uh, YouTube creator. He's like, you won't believe how great the scale is? I'm like, oh, we'll, we'll see. Because that's all he's like, oh, we'll see. So I checked it out. It got good reviews. I'm like, it's 10 bucks. I can send it back. I got it. I tested it. I'm like, wow, this thing is awesome. So if you were also looking for like a shirt pocket reloading scale, something like I mentioned the bullet thing, when you get in as like supreme accuracy, when I said the bullets could be off, they can And often when you're, ac you know, you're loading for the, the ultimate in accuracy, you go through your bullets and you cull the ones that are grain over or under the stated grain so that they're all the same. Uh, that is the thing. And I, I would use it for like, you know, bench rest reloading as long as you were, you know, I, I don't trust any scale outdoors, period, anyway, 100%. So, like, as long as you're staying under maximum loads, I would totally trust it for, for loading, you know, weighing powder charges and stuff, too. Uh, and I'm sure there's other things you can come up with for it. Again, it's made by Greater Goods. You can find it at tspaz.com or thesurvivalpodcast.com and just scroll down if you've been listening to this show anytime recently. As always, you can also support us by becoming a member. If you do that, you help support the show at 18 cents an episode. I'll just leave it at that today. I'll just tell you, without members, the show wouldn't be a show. Twelve and a half years of survival podcast, I owe it all to members and supporters through things like sharing the show, shopping at T-Spass, etc. So thank you all for that. And remember, I take cryptocurrency for uh, membership. With that, let's go ahead and... Uh, Wrap things up here with Song of the Day. Song of the Day today is uh, a new one to me. And I love that, especially when it's a song that I really like. I, I don't know the band, and I don't know the song until, well, today, now I know it. It's by a band called Poets of the Fall. And they have, I'm going to say this, and you're going to like, yeah, no, and that's about how I mean it. They have almost a Queensryche-like sound to them, but the chill, mellow, silent lucidity Queensryche, not the thrashy, trashy, 
you know, heavy side of Queensryche. But the song's called Illusion and Dream. And I think that, you know, I talked about people dividing between privacy and convenience. I think people in this might divide between people that's, that would see it as talking about Hollywood and movies and people that would see it as talking about the government and the state and propaganda, which are often intermingled, by the way. I'm going to come at it from, you know how I'm going to come at it, from an anti-state standpoint. Illusion and dream. See, the problem when people hear dream, they think, well, dreams are great, right? You know, not all dreams are great. There's good dreams and there's nightmares. They're both dreams. Illusion and dream. And sometimes you sell a nightmare with a nice story. And what this song is about is how people are controlled through one way or another. The only word for it is propaganda. How the, the thoughts that you think you think for yourself are actually planted there. And I think we've, we've gotten our fill of that with COVID. And if you believe the mainstream narrative, you're proof that this type of thinking is true. To me, the line that sticks out is being the, the most punch-you-in-the-face line if you truly understand the point of it. The images they sell are illusion and dream. In other words, dishonesty. If someone's selling you illusion and dream, they're lying to you. No matter how bad or beautiful the dream, they're lying to you. Think about that as you listen to the song again. It's called Illusion and Dream by Poets of the Fall, and I have a feeling, unless they're a one-hit wonder, we'll be hearing more from them in the future. With that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Look in my eyes, I'll make you see We're drifting aimlessly Blind in a world of make-believe Sing their songs of key You're not like they agree Buying the need to be discreet I've got no hand in matters worldly I hardly care at all What's going on fails to concern me Cause I'm locked behind my wall But you know what drives me out Out of my mind Whatever makes you see, makes you believe I forget about the premonition you need to conceive The images they sell are illusion and dream In other words, dishonesty Speak ill, please humor me Won't rant on endlessly Just thought I'd try to make you see It doesn't solve a thing to dress it In a pretty gown The stone will not need you to guess if You're still going to drown So you know what drives me out Out of my mind Whatever makes you see, makes you believe. Don't forget about the premonition you need to.